Well, good morning, Grace Community Church, uh, and, uh, and especially good morning if you happen to be visiting with us uh, this morning. Thank you so much for, for being here on a cold Sunday. Um, we're, we're grateful that you're here, and, uh, and whether you're here in the building with us or you're out in the tent or you're joining us online with these crazy days that we live in, um, we are glad to be one church um, gathered with one mission and one message. Um, so my name is Brendan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and uh, we've been in this, this series, First Corinthians, uh, all year. And we're, by golly, we're almost done with it. <laughs> uh, and actually, it's 2022 now. So when I say all year, I mean all last year. <laughs> and we're almost done with it, uh, finishing up uh, in just these next, these next couple weeks uh, so, and uh, as, uh, as Christy mentioned, we've been in 1 Corinthians 15 talking about the resurrection, seeing just the, the greatness of our, of our hope, Jesus' victory over death. Uh, and this was, was reminded of these things again um, last, last Sunday after, you know, after church, uh, where, where it was just me and Eric here, <laughs> but after, yeah, Eric, um, after church, went home, got online, and, uh, and found, as, as I'm sure many of you heard last week, that comedian and actor Bob Saget had passed away um, unex- unexpectedly uh, at the age of 65. Uh, and in the, the days following, or maybe this is the day following, Bob Lopes... <laughs> Bob Lips uh, sent me an article on Facebook um, just musing on some of the, the lessons of Bob Saget's unexpected death. Um, and uh, the, the, this article ref- reflected really on, on Bob Saget's last tweet. Um, this, was the, this was the last tweet that Bob Saget sent at, th- at 3.42 a.m., um, less than 12 hours before his death talking about how he was looking forward to his upcoming comedy tour and encouraging people to sign up. And just sort of the, the, the jarring realization that, um, that death is not something we plan for. And, and here, here's what the, what the article by, by Peter Heck um, said. Peter Heck writes this. Uh, he said, uh, there's nothing wrong with making plans and looking forward to things in this life, obviously. It'd be a miserable existence to just sit around and wait for death to arrive or to live constantly obsessed over when and how it will happen. But there is something dreadfully wrong with our tendency to ignore the one thing in life we are guaranteed. People say death and taxes, but, we're, but surely we're all smart enough to know there are plenty of people who find out ways to avoid the latter. But the former... Death has a flawless track record in its competition with humanity. Save that one man from Nazareth. And Bob Lopes shared this with me. That, that, that last sentence there was really what, what jumped out at me. Here we are in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about that one man from Nazareth who arm wrestled and beat death where no one else has. And to, to sort of put that up against the sobering reminder that no one's ever planning for this. And the reminder, in, in the text we're going to see today, even, that death, death is an enemy. That death is an enemy. And we, you know, sometimes we, we talk sort of naively about, about, you know, death, oh, it's part of life, circle of life, Lion King, all that, all that jazz. But the, the, the reality is, is that 
it's, it's not. Death, the Bible presents death as an enemy, as, as something alien and foreign and broken about this world that was never part of God's good design. Death is an enemy. And it's such an enemy that we spend our lives denying and pretending and running. And despite all the odds, we're always surprised when death wins. And it always wins. Except that one time it went up against the man from Nazareth. And that loss changed everything. So the, the big idea of today's message as we dive back into 1 Corinthians 15 is this. It's that death is an enemy, but that in the end, Jesus' victory becomes our victory. That we, we have a hope and a future. You know, our Advent series, talking about hope. We were talking about this topic a lot. And so and here we are again in 1 Corinthians 15, seeing how Jesus' victory in the end becomes our victory too. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look at verses 20 to 28. If you, if you were with us last week, if you tuned in last week, and we took a bigger look at the chapter, and I said we were going to come back to this paragraph because there was just so much in this paragraph. I had started trying to do a message on the whole thing, and I was like, ah, never mind. We're just going <laughs> to move this one to next week. Because in, <laughs> in this paragraph, Paul, the Apostle Paul does some some really heavy theological lifting. He, he's going to take us on a deep dive into some Old Testament themes and bring them up to, to show how Jesus has decisively defeated our greatest enemy and how that victory becomes ours. And so, so we're going we're gonna to join Paul on some, on some theological heavy lifting. Um, and so as we look at this text, I, I want to just stop right here and pray as we look at God's word, to ask for his help, to give us understanding, to give me clarity as we look at his word together. So if you could pray with me. Jesus, you are our savior and king, and you have, we know, defeated death. You walked out of the grave and were triumphant. And Lord, help us now uh, by your spirit Lord, help us to see this victory, to see this hope, to, to strengthen our faith, put our eyes on you. Lord, give us eyes to see and minds to understand and hearts to love what you have to say to us in your word this morning. Pray this, Jesus, in your great name. Amen. So what we're going to see here is there's three things that Paul wants to show us about Jesus. Three, three titles, three, three realities about Jesus, each of these sort of drawing on the Old Testament. We're going to see that Christ is the first fruits. Don't worry, we'll talk about what that means. That Christ is the second Adam and that Christ is the King of Kings. We're going to see all of this in, in this paragraph. And so here's, so Paul starts, and if, if, if you remember... Um, if you were here last week, he was saying how we learned how some of the people in the Corinthian church were questioning the hope of our future resurrection. And Paul is arguing with them on that point and saying, if there is no future resurrection, then Jesus' resurrection hasn't happened yet. It's all one and the same. And he says that if, if Jesus isn't raised, then we have no hope and we're still in our sins. And then he says this in verse 20, this sort of this exclamation mark. He says, but in fact... 
Christ has been raised from the dead. Jesus really is alive. He really did, in history, the tomb really did roll away. And Jesus, who once was dead and cold in the grave with resurrected, indestructible, glorified bodily life, got up and walked out, and he's alive today. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And he says this, he's been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, which is a euphemism in the Bible for dying, for passing away, you might say, the first fruits of those who have died. For as by a man came death, by a man also has come resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So that word first fruits, what, what, what does that word mean? I know we've, we've seen this even a couple weeks ago in our Advent Hope series, uh, but the fir- first fruits was the very first part of the harvest brought in. And it was, it was a celebration as sort of a thanking God and a proof that the whole harvest was on its way and about to arrive. And so the first fruits of the, of the barley crop or the wheat crop, you know, it's the first bushel gathered in, brought, brought in, and it's a celebration that the whole rest of the field is just about ready. And so we're going to have a party. And so when Paul says that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have died, those who, who have fallen asleep, it means that Jesus' resurrection was not just a one-off event, but that it was the first and that there is a greater harvest, a greater resurrection coming. And so we've, seen, we've been seeing that in this text. We've been seeing that in our Advent series. Uh, but one cool, one really neat detail here is that, is that that imagery of first fruits is more than just a picture Paul is, is, is picking up to be like, hey, Easter's kind of like this. Um, but in fact, when Paul says that Christ is the first fruits from the dead, He's actually going, taking us back to the fulfillment of something in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, when God, brought, when God rescued his people out of Egypt, he gave them several celebrations, feasts and festivals and fasts through the year to, to commemorate what God had done, to be sort of the, the, the repetition of their calendar year, just like we have Christmas. You know, they have, they had, uh, this, the Jewish people had seven feasts throughout the year. And the Feast of First Fruits was one of them. Uh, it was commanded in Leviticus 23, and it was, again, it was the, the beginning of the harvest brought in and celebrated. They take one, one sheaf from the barley harvest, and the, and the priest would, would wave it before the Lord, and sort of the symbolic picture of the whole harvest is coming, and we thank you, Lord. And this feast took place on a very specific day. There was the, the biggest weekend, so to speak, in the Jewish calendar was this weekend in what we might call March or April now. Um, it, it, there, in their calendar, it was the month of Nisan. And in the 14th day of Nisan, was the, on Friday, was the Passover. 
That was when all the when Passover lambs were all sacrificed. People would remember their great rescue out of Egypt. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ is the fulfillment of the 14th day of Nisan. As he hung on the cross, the sacrifice that take the lamb that takes away the sins of the world, hanging there on Friday, the 14th. And then the 15th is a special Sabbath, and the people rested. And the 16th of Nisan, Sunday, is the Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of First Fruits is Easter. It, that is the day that Jesus walked out of the grave. And so pa Paul is not just picking up an imagery that, oh, it's kind of like this. He's saying, no, this is the very fulfillment of that festival that year after year after year, as we take the first of the harvest and celebrate with hope that the rest is coming, now at last the fulfillment of that has arrived as Jesus on the Feast of first fruits broke down death's door and rose. So Jesus' resurrection on first fruits fulfills that festival in the same way that his death fulfilled the Passover. He is the first harvest of the resurrection. Easter is the first sheaf being brought in, the first seed bursting from the ground, the first resurrection from the dead. And the rest of the harvest is coming. Easter, Paul, Paul wants us to know this. He wants us to get this. Easter is proof that our resurrection is coming. And he says, he says and this is, this, is how, this is how it plays out, each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And, and I guess this is really the reason that so much of our Advent series about our future hope ended up talking about the resurrection. Because, because what, Paul, what Paul says here, he links, he links Jesus' resurrection and his return, our resurrection. Easter is about the end times. Easter means the end of the story has begun. That the last days are now. The harvest is upon us. And when Jesus returns, we will rise. And so that sentence from the, the article Bob Lopes shared, that death has a flawless track record, except for that one man from Nazareth, <laughs> not for long, death. Not for long. Because Jesus' victory at the Feast of first fruits means our victory is coming. So how, how can this be? What's, what's the connection? How, how does Jesus' resurrection guarantee our own? And that's, what, that's how, what Paul elaborates on as he continues, as he's going to continue pulling themes from the Old Testament. We see Christ is the first fruits. And now we need to see how Christ is also the second Adam. The second Adam. So you see in verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And now Paul links this, he says, for, because, here's, here's why Jesus' resurrection guarantees our own. Because as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection from the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. I said we had to do some theological heavy lifting here. Paul says in, in a sentence here what he unpacks in a paragraph elsewhere and what really the whole Bible uh, unveils. And so I'm going to maybe summarize, summarize what, this, what these verses mean in a sentence, and then I want to go and look at another thing Paul wrote about this to unpack it a little bit more. What, what Paul means is this, is that our union with Adam, the first man, guarantees our death. Our union with Jesus guarantees our resurrection. Now, there's, there's a whole lot to unpack there. Our union with Adam, union with Christ, like what does that mean? Well, it, it means this, that what we're going to see in Romans 5, we're going to go to Romans chapter 5 to see how Paul unpacks this. It means that God has set up the human race in sort of a, a, strain, a, a bit of a strange way. At least it's a little strange to me. God, the Bible shows us that the way that God has set up the human race is that we are not primarily, first and foremost, just individuals. Autonomous individuals who do, do our own thing and, and stand and fall on our own merits. That, that, like, let's try I'm an individual, but the human race is not primarily individuals. Instead, the Bible shows us about the human race is that we are one, that we are corporately united together and represented by one head, one representative, one person at the top, one person at the front of the line, and everyone else behind is represented by that one. And that's, the Bible says, like, that's how the human race works which might seem like kind of a strange way to wrap your mind around it. Um, you know, in Cross Current two weeks ago, we were, we, we were talking about this. We were looking at this, very, at, at this very text here in Romans 5. And I gave a couple examples, um, as illustrations of what, it, of how, what it means to be represented by another. Um, one Bible example, you might, you're probably familiar with the story of David and Goliath. You know, the, you know, the story, little boy David, rock, giant, um, and if you remember the context of that, the reason David and Goliath were fighting is because the Israelites and the Philistines decided on a really strange battle plan. They said, rather than we all fight you all, it says, let's just choose one champion, one representative to go and fight for us. And those, you know, my, our representative, your representative, will do a little cage match to the death, and whoever wins... Their victory counts for, every, for, for everybody. Our, our, you know, our champion wins, and your whole side becomes our slaves. But if our champion loses, we all, be, we all become your slaves. Everything hit, hung on the one representative. And so David and Goliath were the representatives. And David wins. God's king triumphs, and his victory counted for everybody else, even though they were all the rest of the Israelites were scared and hiding back at the camp, yet they shared in the victory because their representative out on the field had won. That's, that's a, a picture of how God has constituted the human race. There, there is one champion who represents everyone behind him. Maybe another way to think about it is, is in our even in our political system today, it sort of works like this. You know, America's a democracy, means we vote for leaders and vote for issues, but we're not exactly a pure democracy because like, a pure 100% democracy would mean every person votes on every issue. 
you all vote on this law and this law and this law and this law. And it doesn't work that way. That would be unwieldy in a country of 350 million people. And so instead, what we do is we elect representatives. And what, what we do, what we really are doing is we all have power as citizens and we go to the ballot to elect a representative and we sort of hand off our citizen authority to them and say, go make decisions that represent us. And so here in Kingsville, we're, it, you know, we're represented in Maryland's first district, represented by, uh, by Andy Harris. And whether or not you voted for Andy Harris, whether or not you voted at all, yet you as a citizen, your authority is endowed in, into Andy Harris to go and represent you. And when he votes, he's voting for all 100,000 or whatever people in Maryland's first district. He's our representative. And what he does counts for us. It's, it's as if all of us are doing it together. So those two pictures, maybe that would help you a little bit with what, how the Bible describes the way the human race works before God. We don't just stand on our own merits, me before God, by myself. It's a, I stand in a line, either in Adam or in Christ. And Paul says here, in Adam all die. And in Christ, all shall be made alive. And he unpacks this in Romans 5. He says this in Romans 5. He says, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then Paul pauses. He's like, hold on, time out. See the little dash there. He pauses. He breaks off his train of thought, breaks his sentence because he needs to clarify because I, th I, I think if I'm trying to get into Paul's head here, he realizes that what he just said sounds like our sort of individual notion. That I, I sin, I bear the consequences. You sin, you bear the consequences. And that's how it works. And just everyone dies because everyone sins. And Paul's like, actually, that's not quite what I'm trying to say. And so he backs up. And he says, he says, actually, that's not how it works. He said, sin was in the world after the, uh, before the law was given, before Moses and the Ten Commandments. From Adam to Moses, everyone was dying. And he's like, and yet, sin isn't counted where there is no law. And yet, death kept reigning. His observation, his point, I wonder if you've ever wondered this. He makes a really a, kind of an interesting point here. He says, God gave Adam that one rule, right? Don't eat the fruit. Adam ate the fruit. And then from Adam all the way until Moses, there were no other laws given. There were no other commands given. God never said thou shalt not anything until from there to Moses. <laughs> and yet everyone kept dying. And Paul just points out, he's like, what commandments exactly were they breaking? But you see, this isn't how it works. It's not just that I sin, I die, you sin, you die. It's Adam sinned, everyone dies. Because he's our representative. And he says, death reigned over everyone, even those whose sinning wasn't like the transgression of Adam who actually broke a rule. He says that Adam, who was a type which is a Bible word kind of meaning a foreshadowing or a preview of the one who was to come. 
God set up the human race like this with Adam's failure rippling back to everyone who comes after him. And it's all, everyone after him is all included in Adam's failure. And you might say, that's a weird way to run the world, God. And maybe it is. If I was God and I was going to set up a universe, maybe I wouldn't set it up like that. But I'm not God and I don't have a universe. <laughs> We're living in God's universe. And this is how he set it up. But the whole point of the first Adam is that there was a second Adam coming. The whole point of all humanity being represented by Adam is so that there could be a new humanity represented by a new head, Jesus. And so he says this in verse 18, kind of summarizes all of this. He says, just as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, Jesus stepping forward as our perfect representative leads to justification and life, freedom, forgiveness for all. For as by the one man's disobedience, everyone in line behind him is made a sinner, so by the one man's obedience, everyone behind in him becomes righteous. So in the same way that Adam's sin just counts for me and I bear the consequences and die even though I didn't eat the fruit, so now... Jesus, his perfect life, his perfect obedience counts for me, sinner though I am, though I break all the laws, though I break all the rules, yet Jesus is the one who represents me and the not guilty verdict that comes down on Jesus counts for me. This is how the gospel works, so to speak. This is how Jesus' death counts for me is that he's my representative. What he does counts for me. So over here in Adam, at Adam disobeyed, I disobeyed. Adam ate the fruit, I ate the fruit. But over here, Jesus took the consequences of, of my sin. So it's gone from me. Jesus' perfect, righteous life counts for me. Jesus' sacrificial death counts for me. And Jesus' victorious march out of the grave counts for me. Because everything he does gets sort of copy-pasted onto me. That's the gospel. And so Paul summarizes this this way. He says, if because of one man's trespass, Adam over here, death reigned through that one man. And look around, death reigns. Like Christy was saying, times may seem dark. Death reigns because of that one man, yet much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through this man, Jesus Christ, who stands in our place. And, and you know, the way, so in Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. How do you get from one line to the other? How do you get from in Adam to in Christ? See, in, in, Adam, in Adam is the default. We're just kind of born into, in, into that line. We're all just born by default into Adam. And so under the, the reign and tyranny of death from day one, the way to get into that second line is faith. 
is trust, is looking at that Savior, Jesus, and saying, I, I need that Savior. Jesus, save me. Like, can, you, can you help me in, in, in this mess? Because there's no way out of this mess. And Jesus just takes hold, pulls you into this line. And that's salvation. That's the gospel. That's the good news, is that you can be transferred into another humanity with a new representative who has done it perfectly. Where Adam failed and where, even if you were at the head of the line, it's not like you would have done any better. Where we all fail, this one succeeded and everything he has done can count for you. His death and his resurrection. In Christ, everyone in that line gets made alive. And so this is how Jesus is the first fruits, the first domino, because what he does ripples back to everyone in him. And because he has conquered death, so will we. Jesus is the first fruits. Jesus is the second Adam. And this brings us to our third point, that Jesus is the king of kings. And you know, we, we had to do the heavy lifting in Romans 5 because Paul is going to root this next idea to, to help us see and have hope that Jesus is king. He's going to root that idea of Jesus' kingship in this reality that Jesus is the second Adam. So like, we had to do the heavy lifting to even understand some of what Paul's going to say here in this, as he continues. That Jesus is the new Adam. He's the head of a new humanity. And so we have to go back to the Old Testament again to understand what Paul's going to say here. Because if Jesus is the new Adam, let's go back to the beginning when God first launched this. God created Adam and Eve in the image of God, we're told. In Genesis 1, God created man in his own image, male and female. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. It's sort of our marching orders as humanity. And that phrase, image of God, so important to understand much of what the, the New Testament teaches about Jesus. The, phrase, the term image of God in Genesis doesn't just mean that human beings are special because we're sort of like God. You know, God... God is creative, I'm creative. God is spiritual, I'm spirit, I'm spiritual. God is relational, I'm relational. It's, those things are all true, but that's simply not what it means, what the image of God means. The image of God is a royal title. It's, it, it's a royal title in the context of when Genesis was written, and it means the one who represents God, who, who stands in, on God's behalf and represents him. What image of God means is that God created humanity to rule the world for him. That's why he made him in his image, and then the first thing he said is, here, have dominion, reign over this world. That humanity's job was to represent God's reign and God's blessing and God's presence in all the earth. That's, that's what it means to be human. Now, and uh, scholar N.T. Wright, let me say a little parentheses about N.T. Wright. This is worth parenthesizing here. And, uh, 
there's a lot that I love about N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is one of the foremost and respected evangelical scholars in the world in this generation. Avoid anything N.T. Wright writes about Paul and justification, because he's catastrophically wrong. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Devour everything N.T. Wright says about Jesus and the resurrection and how Jesus fits into the story of the Old Testament. No one does it better than N.T. Wright. And so this is from, from N.T. Wright's book, How God Became King, The Story of the Gospel. It's probably in my top three like transformational books that I have read. And, and N.T. Wright, he writes this about this, this Genesis idea. He says this, he says, the Jews assumed on the basis of their strong creational theology that the creator had made the world in such a way as to be properly ordered and run by human beings. The Jewish vision of theocracy, of God being in charge, was always one of a rule mediated through his image bearers, that is, through human beings. This is how God set up the world. And so this is what's wrong with the world. Because Adam over here in this line, the, the representative head of humanity, failed. And Adam's abdication of this throne wrecked the world. Adam's fall doomed all humanity to death, and it broke all of creation. All of creation, which was designed, N.T. Wright says, to be ordered and run by human beings. The world can only work when there was a human being on the throne. And with Adam fallen and the, the, the garden serpent ascending to his usurped throne, everything is wrecked now. And so in the story of the Bible, the restoration of what went wrong means there has to be a human savior. Everything hinges on a human savior. There must be a man to take back Adam's throne or else the world will never run the right, the right way again. There will never be a, a representative to, to gather a new humanity behind him. It has to be a human being who saves the world. But of course, there is no human being who can save the world and so God himself steps in. And this is why Christmas this is like, why, why did Jesus become a baby? Why did Jesus start as an embryo and go through all of human development? It's because there has to be a human savior. There has to be a human representative. There has to be a new man to take the throne. And we have that in Jesus. We have a human savior. Jesus, in his humanity, the New Testament tells us, is the perfect image of God. Colossians 1 says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's another royal title. It's saying Jesus is the image of God, and thus he is the king over all creation. He takes back what Adam lost. He is the second Adam. He's the fulfillment of Genesis 1.27. He's the one who takes back dominion, crushes the serpent's head, reverses the curse, sat down on the throne, and has reinstated human reign over the cosmos. Today, there is a man on the throne of the universe, Jesus Christ. 
this is what will put everything right in the end. And the end is what Paul comes to next, to understand that what it means that Jesus is the king. He says this, he says, then comes the end. When Jesus delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Sort of that picture of a conquering king with, you know, conquered his enemies and drags the enemy king there and has his you know, foot on his head there. It says Jesus is going to reign until then, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Four, and then Paul quotes Psalm 8. God has put all things in subjection under his feet. That Psalm 8, what Paul quotes there, is the psalmist celebrating Genesis 1.27. Who is man that God, you are mindful of him, but you have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. That psalm is talking about humanity and the celebration of humanity made in the image of God. And Paul says that's fulfilled in Jesus. He's the one. He's the one who actually does this because he's the second Adam, because he's the perfect image of God. He is the one crowned with glory and honor with all things under his feet. And getting this right, that Jesus is the human king and savior we need, is going to really help us understand what Paul says next. Because what Paul says next is, is, is really confusing, and it has been the source of much tr theological tripping up of people. Um, and, and in fact, if you have your ESV, you know, we preach out of the ESV. Um, the ESV is, in fact, a little hard to follow here. It, it, um, it's a really good translation, but it just leans so hard on being literal that I, I was reading this and it was like making my head spin, and I think I'm pretty literate. So I want to read it in the NIV. It says the same thing, but it just puts some like periods and, quote, and you know, commas, makes it a little easier to follow. Here's what Paul says next. He says, God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, when it says everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. So when he, Jesus, has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. So at the end, Jesus, after defeating every enemy, crushing death and hell and Satan forever, hands the kingdom over to God the Father and is subject to him. So here's a clarification we need to see and then what this really does mean because this is that the hope is here in this confusing thing that Paul says. This doesn't mean that Jesus is somehow lesser than God the Father or ever will be. The rest of the Bible makes this crystal clear that Jesus as the second person of the Trinity is equal with the Father and the Spirit, one God, equal in power and glory and being. So there, there has never been, or nor will there ever be, a time when the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is subordinate to the Father in his function or his being. Never. They are one God, co-equal in glory forever. 
everything that the Father is, the Son is. He is the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. He reigns with the Father and the Spirit, completely, utterly, eternally equal. So what does Paul, and the the Bible is just clear on that. So what does Paul mean when he says the end of the story is the Son being made subjects to God the Father? It is this. The great accomplishment of the gospel is not that Jesus now reigns as God. He has always done that and never for one moment ceased to do that. The great accomplishment of the gospel is that because of Jesus' incarnation, death, and resurrection, because of Christmas and Easter, Jesus now reigns as the perfect human being. He can be our representative. He sat down on Adam's throne. He fulfilled Genesis 1 and Psalm 8. He has restored human rule over creation. And now and forever, Jesus wields humanity's dominion exactly as Adam was supposed to, in submission to God the Father. And so when Paul says that Jesus will hand the kingdom over to God the Father and be subject to him, he doesn't mean that Jesus somehow becomes less than God. He means something far more remarkable. He means that Jesus forever remains a human being. He is 100% God, and he is today remaining 100% human. Jesus becoming a human being, being born at Christmas, was not temporary. It wasn't like Jesus left heaven, became a man, and then left that behind to go back to being God. He never stopped being God. What happened is he took on our flesh and blood and our nature permanently. He will always be a human being now. He has forever, he has forever united himself to our nature, flesh and blood Forever, He permanently humbled himself by becoming a man. Today, right now, at this moment, Jesus sits on humanity's throne with a human body and a human nature and human scars. The glory of his work on our behalf as our representative, he still bears the scars. He is still our human savior. Everything we need, exactly what we need. So if I can have the the worship team come up. So what does all of this mean? Like I said, there was some heavy theological lifting in here. What does all of this mean that Jesus is the first fruits? Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus is the king of kings. It's this. Simply, Jesus is exactly the savior we need. And his victory can be yours if you are in Christ. If you are in line behind him, his victory counts for you. His death on the cross can take away all of your sins. And his resurrection from the grave guarantees your future resurrection from the grave. Death is an enemy, but one day Jesus' victory will become our victory. And so I, I, I thought I was thinking, how, how do we end this service? And it was funny, I was talking to Christy before the service, and she had this exact same thought. 
back last week is that the only, the only way that you can end this text is singing the great Easter hymn, Christ the Lord is risen today. I, I know it's not Easter, the flowers are not blooming, but you know what? It is Easter because Jesus is in fact risen today. So I suggest that we sing this great Easter hymn like it was Easter Sunday and you're decked out and you're Easter besting Christ the Lord is risen today because Christ the Lord is risen today. He is alive. He is the proof that our resurrection is coming. He is the King of Kings whose victory counts for us and will one day pull us from the grave. Listen, listen maybe with new ears to one of the verses that we're going to, I think, I think we're going to sing. I didn't, I'm pretty sure we're going to sing this verse. If not, listen with, to, with, with new ears to this verse. Soar we now where Christ has led, following our exalted head. How good. We, we are singing that. <laughs> Made like him, like him we rise. Ours, the cross, the grave, the skies. This is our hope, church. His victory counts for us. So let's stand and let's declare this with faith.